0: Today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Snout School. If you're interested in marketing and learning more about how to get your veterinary clinic on the map or just want some local girl gang support in the veterinary field, then go check out snoutschool.com start. What's up, you guys? I am so excited to have Dr. Tanasia Crocker on the podcast today. She is a 2009 graduate from Texas A&M's College of Veterinary Medicine. Growing up, she was always passionate about horses. She actually started her journey after graduation as an equine ambulatory vet and then became a small animal general practitioner and emergency veterinarian. She currently practices in Grapevine, Texas at Northwest Animal Hospital and the Animal Emergency Hospital of North Texas. She is passionate about mentorship and empowering both veterinary students and young veterinarians to embrace the profession and find joy and success. She is a mom. She is a wife. She's so much fun to have on the podcast today as we give you a general practitioner's view about dermatology and derm referrals. All right, you guys, I'm so excited for today. I have Dr. Tanasia Crocker on of Dr. Crocker Pet Vet. And what I'm really excited about with this particular episode is we are going to go over from a general practitioner's view. I get asked a lot, like as a dermatologist, when do I want to see referrals? What can you guys do in the clinics before referring them? So I thought it would be a great chance to talk to a general practitioner I really respect and love, a fellow vet mom, um, to just have conversations about these questions. and. Can be a conversation where we can ask each other questions and really kind of figure out the best way to handle these cases, whether or not you do live by someone who um, you know you can refer to. So, Doctor Crocker, I just want to start out by saying thank you so much. Um, disclaimer: She is in the midst of losing her voice, so if she goes down, I will recover for her because I just went through this a couple of weeks ago. But thank you so much for joining us on the Derm Podcast today. Well,
1: thank you for having me. I am pumped because. One, I live in Texas, and allergies literally are the thing I see every single day, yep. all the time, and so I am excited to pick your brain. And I also got my kid down for a nap, so we are <laughs> kid free for a little bit, so we can hopefully get this done. So, yeah,
0: that's our hope, and that is our fingers crossed that we don't yeah. get called from daycare or have kids waking up. So let's just start out easy. Obviously, you are a great practitioner. You um, are very educated. How comfortable do you feel with say a typical, let's just focus on allergies because that's going to be the most common and we can break out into other stuff a little bit later. But how comfortable do you feel like a run in the mill typical allergy case in like three-year-old lab coming in, chewing its paws?
1: I would say my comfort level is pretty high, mainly because again, being in Texas, it is just so common. Licking and chewing paws, itchy skin is something i see continuously and so i love your message of cytology and rechecks because uh, that is something that my practice lives by i think it's best practice i think it's the most important and i think those secondary infections are key to catch um but i also really really love that we have a dermatologist we work closely with close by and when i'm seeing these pets um really frequently i'm starting to say hey guess what i really think we need to address the underlying issue and get you somewhere that we can actually fix your pet. And so um, I, I am excited to hear what you have to say about that, but I'm fairly comfortable with the run-of-the-mill, you know, otitis and and feet licking issues and secondary infections, but I always like to pick your brain, so.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Well, we can definitely do that. Do you, I love that you guys are, you implement cytologies on a regular basis, and I do find, in there's some great general practices that they do, and it makes our job easier when owners kind of know what to expect when they come in. Do you feel like in a general practice setting, since you guys have made that part of your culture with these Durham cases, that you get a lot of pushback from clients or do you explain as you go? So they just kind of expect it. It's just an accepted thing at this point.
1: No, I do. So I am a firm believer in training clients and our clients know that we practice in a very preventative manner. And so they know that we like to do diagnostics so that we treat things effectively and we are being accurate in what we're doing. And so I will get actually a ton of second opinions where people are frustrated because uh, the dog still has really itchy skin or is not doing well. And just the same antibiotic has been thrown at them over and over and no cytology has been done and they really need an antifungal. So just even in those initial visits explaining to them How many layers of this the allergies go and that we really need to focus on all aspects of it and already setting them up for the possibility of a dermatologist i think you can show them the value of a cytology pretty quickly and then the recheck you know i'll have some people not do the recheck and instead they end up coming back a month later and they're like well my dog's still itchy and that's you know your opportunity to say yeah we had you know planned on you rechecking two weeks after we did the medications how was your dog doing this time? Well, they were doing great. Well, we needed to recheck to make sure that infection was cleared because if it wasn't, you need to do medication longer. And that shows them, oh yeah, I should have come back for that recheck. And then that second time around, they're going to be better about doing it. And so I really think it's that first conversation with that itchy pet that you're setting them up for it, but you really are training your clients. And then on the flip side, it is not bad for your revenue stream to being To be thorough, I have students come through and all the time I'm explaining to them, we do cytologies because it's good medicine, but it also does add to the bottom line, which is never a bad thing as a veterinarian. You need to charge for what you know and your knowledge, and I think that's good business also.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think where people get caught up on is they sometimes feel either one, not comfortable doing cytology, or they almost feel guilty if they do a recheck cytology, especially if it comes back unremarkable or negative or whatever you wanna call it. And I completely agree. You just have to communicate the value of it. Like our clients, and I know we're gonna see a bit of a different clientele who's willing to see a specialist, but we still see people who have financial concerns too. And I'll tell them like, as I'm doing it, and I do it right in front of them so they can see it, but I'm explaining why. And if you're gonna be taking it, the sample anyway, if you're explaining why you're doing it while you're doing it, you're not even losing time in that recheck. Because so I know a lot of times, like you guys are seeing clients really quickly, depending on the practice. And so I kind of set the expectation that I'm going to keep doing them until they're negative. So they're already aware of that. And while I'm taking on a recheck, I may say like, wow, they look really good. I'm so glad to hear that things are going well. We are just going to make sure under the microscope that we're not seeing any pesky little organisms so that we can make sure it's the right decision to stop these medications, and we know what we're dealing with in the future. If they flare again, we knew it was clear today. And I really find if you communicate that with owners, and there's so much value in having an unremarkable cytology. Because if they come in and they're still chewing, but all of a sudden the yeast is all gone, then that's gonna change my treatment plan versus if they the yeast didn't respond, or if there's now bacteria there. So we don't get too much pushback because we communicate that. So I just, I love that you do that. So as someone who you're in a a clinic that does psychologies regularly, you guys are very comfortable with Durham. When do you make that decision to go ahead and refer an allergy case? So I, I think because a lot of people are very
1: financially driven that is kind of one of my arguments that I start early on um, in explaining to a client why it's beneficial. So, if I've seen a pet that is younger and I've seen them pretty much every two months for two, three visits for the same sort of allergy flare, um, and we're just seeing breakthrough infections or they keep trying to stop Apoquel and you know are having issues, I will say, listen, you know, you come in here, we do get your pet doing better, but then they're flaring up again. And I know it does seem like a lot when you go to the dermatologist and it costs, you know, so much to do the initial visit, but that's two, three visits here. So if you think about it, if I send you over there and we can fix the underlying problem or control it better, then financially in the long run, your dog has 10 more years to live, you're going to be in a much better place. And so when I kind of propose it to them like that, I feel like it, Helps them see the financial value of it, and also a lot of times I will talk about the fact that in Texas, especially we have such bad respiratory allergies, and people are miserable and I'll say, you know in animals it's skin and so think about how miserable you are right now, how you feel. I really want your pet to feel better I don't want your pet to live the next couple of years, you know every two, three months having to be on weeks of medications like let's fix the underlying problem, and that seems to help them wrap their head around it. And we'll note every single time, discuss derm referral, owner considering derm referral. And sometimes it's several visits. Sometimes it's a whole year of visits, but eventually once they go, it does seem like they get it and it clicks and they're really comfortable with it. And we, the dermatologists locally tell us we're the number one referrer and we refer people quicker and faster, which in turn means that they're controlled better and easier they've shown that the longer we wait to refer, the harder it is to control them. So the younger we seem to refer them,
0: it does seem to benefit the patient in the long run. That's awesome. I mean, I I think really starting to think of the underlying cause and what I, the most, the thing I love the most, what you just brought up was that it could take a while. Like sometimes they see like declined derm referral and then, and then they don't offer it anymore. And even if they never take it, like if you keep offering it and making it clear that it's an option, then eventually it might click and eventually it might not, but at least you know, you're practicing the best medicine and offering it to them because yeah. there's certainly people that I'll see, I'll get the referring vets records and it'll say, D- discuss derm referral. Really think you should do term like five times. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay. And yeah. um, so <laughs> I love that you don't give up. Sometimes I feel people are like, once they see declined, it's same with flea control for me. Like it's almost a a challenge when I see a dog Mm -hmm. coming in and I think they're flea allergic and I see they declined it in the past. I'm like, all right, like I'm not giving up best medicine. Like I have, I still have a Newfoundland right now that for rechecks every time I'm like, I know we've talked about this before, but I (laughs) really, really know that your, your pet is flea sensitive and, and she, and you know, she'll kind of like laugh every time. She's like, I know, but I know you think that, but to me, it's like, I'm not going to just not bring it up when I really think it's an important aspect because they didn't say, no, you don't need to be a jerk about it. Like you're not doing the right thing. Like you can say in a way, it's like, I know we talked about this before, but I just want you to know, I still think this is a big part of the problem because we are the doctors and like, we get to make that decision and it's, it's up to the client whether they want to take that or not.
1: Yeah. And we don't like uncomfortable conversations in veterinary medicine. I mean, a lot of us, confrontation is hard sometimes, but I think like you said, if you presented in a, you know, I'm just trying to let you know, this is an option, you know, and I do think it would be best for your pet, but hey, if you want to stay the course, like I'm here for you, let's do what we can for your pet. Um, but I'm starting to get concerned that we're not going to continue to respond to A, B, and C, or we're going to get resistant infections, or you know maybe we're missing something. Um, and I think that if you show that you're caring and that you're concerned, then it makes a difference. And I've had owners say, what? There's veterinary dermatologists? Oh, yeah.
0: Like,
1: they did not even realize that that was a specialty. And I think that it is such a common thing we see all the time that you would, we just know it. But sometimes you don't realize that really owners have no clue that that is even an option. So I 100% mention it all the time and all of my associate vets do too. And I think you have to have that team approach to allergies in your practice. Um, But training your clients is is key from the beginning.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm pretty sure my grandparents still aren't clear that they're veterinary (laughs) dermatologists. Like I remember my parents talking about it when I was doing my residency and they were like, what? Like that's a thing. So yeah, all the time we don't. All, they probably don't use sleep control it. either, but. That's oh okay. yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure my grandparents would never bring their pets like to school. <laughs> to the um, but yeah, I mean, they definitely don't know. And what you don't want is for them to find out through Dr. Google that that exists. And you never mentioned it because we do get clients who come in and they're upset. And sometimes they're ones that you'd be shocked. Like you wouldn't think they'd be the ones that would go for referral, But they'll come to us after years of you know managing infections and be upset it was never mentioned. So at least if you plant that seed and if it's not taken, you offered it versus someone being upset and coming because you thought there's no way they would ever go for it. So is there anything say you know you're gonna probably refer a case? Anything that you necessarily try to avoid doing prior to sending a case or anything that you think you're gonna refer it for something, either a biopsy or culture or is there something that you kind of try to stay away from as far as diagnostics or therapies? Or are you pretty open depending on the client? So
1: if it is anything that is going to need um, something that requires like sedation or is going to be, you know, a, a deep flush of an ear or a certain cytology a culture biopsy sample, I usually just have Derm do that because I feel like you guys are very specific about location and how you want those samples handled. And I don't mind the fact that you want it done a certain way and I respect that. Um, So I will usually send them, I have my list of medications that they're not allowed to be on and the amount of time they have to be off those medications because a lot of people, owners are giving Benadryl on their own and they don't realize that they can't be on that for intradermal testing. So I will go over that pretty extensively with the owners, what they're on right now, how long they have to be off of it before they will see the dermatologist because I'm setting them up with expectation that they will get intradermal testing at that first visit. Um, I always am very clear about cost. I have a good sheet of what it's going to cost when they go because I think that is a huge thing as a referring veterinarian to set your owners up properly um, and communicate costs. And then I also will also talk about how long it might take for them to respond. And so, you know, that this is just the start of a longer journey that could take up to a year to see the benefit of, but in the dog's lifespan is going to be well worth the effort and the time and the energy. So I I let Derm do a majority of the big things and I just try to set them up for success with what I communicate to the owner.
0: I think that's great. I do get asked a lot about biopsying should they wait should they do it and for me if you think there's a chance you're going to refer to the derm to derm or they're going to take a referral say like it's the nasal planum disease though I think like many general practitioners can be great at biopsying it can be pretty particular as far as like site selection what the lesion looks like, where we send them. Um, And it's always a bit heartbreaking when I see one that the biopsy was like, you know, maybe they only took one site. I don't know like which site they took and like the biopsy results come back a little so-so. Like not really Mm -hmm. definitive, but I think they should be definitive. Um, And then we'll re-biopsy and potentially get an answer. So I definitely think general practitioners absolutely can do great biopsies. I think that comes down to the client's expectations again if you say this is looking you know funky i think this is something i'm going to probably offer for you to go to referral for and they're and they're up for it then if they can get in quickly then i would probably suggest letting a dermatologist handle it however you're absolutely right there's gonna be people that just will not go for a referral um either financially or they just really trust you and they're not going to go to someone else and then I think if you know that you're going to be managing the case, absolutely, like culture, do the, do the biopsies and feel really comfortable with that. But it's hard if you just do it to do it, knowing that you're going to just send the results to the dermatologist because it ends up, sometimes that works out really well, depending on your experience and your comfort level. But sometimes it ends up that more money has to be spent to repeat certain things. Um, we're almost, I mean, in my clinic, I'm almost always going to do cytology just to do it myself. But I think whether or not you decide to do something like a culture or biopsy, one depends on, you know, if it's something they can't get into someone locally for like a month or two, that might be different. But if they can get in a reasonable amount of time, they're willing um, to go see someone, and you think that ultimately the dermatologist will manage it, then Mm -hmm. I would I would suggest letting the dermatologist do it. If it's something where they're not going to go for a referral they can't get in for a long amount of time you feel comfortable doing it then absolutely obviously there's great general practitioners that can biopsy and 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 decide what medications to put to use for things like culturing so i think that that's really great because we did um one of the things i was going to ask you about is when you decide to biopsy or culture but it sounds like you really do try to actually have them do it speaking of that because I've had a couple cases recently where I've had to re biopsy, and sometimes that happens. But do you get frustrated if you send a derm case off and say you see a bunch of cytologies repeated or skin scrapings repeated? They re biopsy when you did it, like say two months before. Do you get frustrated knowing that derm we only have so many diagnostics we do? If you see a lot of your diagnostics repeated,
1: no, I. So I think derm changes so frequently, um, which. I think you said this in one of your podcasts recently, but that's why you love it. And that is why as general practitioners hate it because we just want to be able to like put them on a medication and not have to worry about it anymore. And it's always changing. So if, if any specialist, I expect them to do tests that I have done. It is definitely derm because that skin is ever changing. Those samples are ever changing. Infections are changing, um, especially with even the weather. So I never am shocked, and I totally expect that there's gonna be things like that done when uh, the clients go. And I will often, again, set my client up for that expectation. You know, they're gonna check and see if this infection's cleared, see if this antibiotic I had you on was effective. You know, these are some things that, you know, they'll be looking at, and we'll make sure to send records so they know what we've done, but, you know, they're gonna have to get a picture of that day. So I will set that expectation for the client, too, so they're not sitting there saying, well, my vet just did in your cytology. You know, why are you having to do that again? Um, so I, I want to set you up for success because ultimately, if this pet gets better, it's going to make me look good too as a referring veterinarian.
0: So. Oh, totally. And, and honestly, sometimes like tests aren't 100%. So, like fungal cultures. You know like biopsy like if we're seeing them two weeks later like things could have totally changed by that point it couldn't have advanced it could have been more obvious i mean i've seen cases from other dermatologists and i completely trust the medicine they do and i'm sure they've seen my cases where all of a sudden they do have to repeat things and we're repeating cytologies almost every single recheck that we see them with so i i wouldn't get frustrated when that happens because ultimately it guess it can depend on the test, it can depend on the site selection, it can depend on the lab you send it to. I mean, I've had a few um fungal cases recently where like my PCR and my fungal culture were negative, but then the biopsy showed a ton of spores, and it's like, well, why did that happen? So sometimes you just get tests that aren't hundred percent and even will have to repeat them in order to get a true diagnosis. Skin scraping. I've had cases that I've skin scraped especially pre-Isoxazoline where <laughs> I skin scraped and I couldn't find anything and we find lots of infection and we treat it and then I'll see them. And I'm like, something just doesn't feel right. Like I'm just i going to repeat it and then I'll find tons of demodex. So like sometimes just depending on what that skin is doing in that moment, you, it's easier to get certain results in your diagnostics than others, even between our rechecks and between other dermatologists. So if we back up and talk about just the typical allergy dog, we talk about the young allergy dog, and say you have a case that you see them, you treat infection, you put them on Apoquil, they're doing great, and they just decide to stay on Apoquil because the pet's doing great, we're okay, it's a medication that can be used long-term, we'll do the appropriate monitoring, but pet's happy, it scores like a one out of 10, everyone's happy. Do you even bring up? The possibility of allergy testing? And how do you approach that? And you talked about this a little bit previously, but this is often where I see people not wanting to refer because they're like, they're doing great on a safe therapy, like point. So why even bother?
1: I will usually not bring it up right away. I'll be honest, because I do feel like I just won't hear from the owner. Right. They'll be getting their Apoquil refilled and we'll be doing our you know, lab work and everything looks good. And so it's great. So it might not be a year before I see them again and they're still on their Apoquil and they look good. But since I know that allergies, one, I feel like they get worse each year. So as the seasons come around, I'll have dogs that were doing great on Apoquil for a year or two. And then all of a sudden they are just really struggling. Um, and so... I've found that if I do mention derm, it does. it's harder for people to wrap their minds around it when their pet is doing well, but then when we have that really bad flare-up or we have a breakthrough infection, it kind of clicks for them, and so it will help them. But I wouldn't say I push it and promote it as much as I probably should in the younger, well-controlled dog. I do think just financially, Apoquel can add up depending on, you know, how much they're on and frequency, and so sometimes uh, we are referring just because long term for their dog to be on for years and years and years, that is going to add up quickly. But I don't if they're doing that great, I usually don't even hear from them, and so right. I'm not having to have that discussion. I would say I more so have the dogs that are doing great for like a month or two, and so the owner stops the call and then they get really bad, and then they're coming back in. So I'm going to you know, at that point say, okay, we're starting to see you more frequently. Or as soon as you stopped it, they had a really bad flare up. We probably need to send you to get more testing done.
0: Yeah. And I think that's completely reasonable. Sometimes what I see is when people are talking about, well, I have pets who are doing great at Apoquil, like and they're happy with that, like why even refer? I think just like planting the seed again, like that's my big thing. So going back to talking about that pet, the young dog, we absolutely see that allergies tend to get worse as they get older. So a lot of times like the pets who do great on apical or and don't get me wrong, I use apical and point day in, day out, atopica, some steroids. But a lot of times when you have those pets that are doing great and then all of a sudden their allergies are still progressing in the background, some could do great on that therapy the rest of their lives. Some will see that they start getting worse the next few years and all of a sudden despite those medications they're not working as well and we tend to have better luck desensitizing pets I mean I've had them desensitize great even I allergy tested a 10 year old dog the other day because the owner really wanted to pursue so I definitely think there's still value in dogs that are older but we know that the younger we can start them on that often the better luck that we do have so that's something that even just playing the seed like they're doing great in Apoquil, say they're in for their annual and just just mentioning, like, I'm so glad to hear they're doing so great. You know, if you ever interested um, to do something that's natural, that's a long-term therapy to see if maybe we didn't have to use something like a traditional medication all the time, I'm always happy to refer you to a dermatologist for allergy testing. I actually had someone tell me that they always feel embarrassed to send me cases that were doing well, like they shouldn't be referring them because they weren't disasters. I was Uh like oh my god please send me those cases <laughs> like please like all day long I see like you know the nasty horrible yeah horrible cocker ears Easy. like if I yeah. my favorite clients are the ones that come in they're on point, whatever they're doing well it's a two-year-old lab three-year-old cat whatever and they just want to of course we're not using points in cats so let me make that real quick <laughs> in, in apicals off label but say they're doing well but they just want to you know be proactive i'm like give me all of those like that's never i'm gonna be you'll be my favorite referring if you send me those cases um so people always think that they only have to refer like absolute disasters to us when it's quite the opposite like most dermatologists are going to be very preventative like we're going to be very much like That's why we're allergy testing. It's not something we're going to see a result of super quickly, but we are thinking of the future because of the cases that we do see, you know, the dogs who do end up having their ear canal removed because they have recurrent ear infections. The dog who do get methicillin resistant staff after years and years and years of having to be on beta-lactam antibiotics or whatever. So like, I was like laughed when they told me that because I was like, I, you'd be my favorite person if you just yeah. sent me like all <laughs> those cases I, and I could do those cases all day long. Um,
1: what, what percentage of dogs do you feel do respond to the immunotherapy?
0: Because
1: yeah. I've heard 85%, but I wasn't sure if that was like a quotable percentage to tell people.
0: Yeah. The thing is with immunotherapy that can be difficult is it's really hard to do a ton of studies on immunotherapy. So even though it's something we do a lot of because they're usually on concurrent medications, it's a long-term therapy. A lot of them are retrospective because it's hard to say, well, let's do a you know, five to 10 year study, but they're also getting all these other things often. So it's hard. I usually say uh, some sort of benefit and my anecdotal experience of like 70 to 75% of cases. Some people say like a third a third a third like a third end up just on immunotherapy, a third end up being beneficial with immunotherapy plus maybe also need other drugs and a third don't respond. I think it's hard because, you know, what do you consider only immunotherapy if if they're on immunotherapy only for like 4 years and have one minor flare, like what category do they go into? So when I talk to clients, I usually say we see success in about like 70 to 75% of our patients. And I do really feel like most of my patients respond positively to immunotherapy. What I talk to clients about when I first see them is success can have lots of different ways of looking. So mm-hmm. sometimes people think like that's all I want to be on, and that's what our dream is for every single case. But sometimes benefit is your two-year-old lab. You that's been my example a lot today. I'm a two-year-old lab, very <laughs> I, love lab. I love yeah. labs. Yeah, a lot of lab. Good very allergic. Um, you know, they uh, have to be on Apoquil most of the year, but they get like horrific ear infections. And so mm-hmm. say like within a few years of being on immunotherapy, they only need Apoquil in the summer, they get one ear infection a year. Like that's great. Like that's, you know, so people often think it has to be an all or none thing where the benefit of immunotherapy is one, it's safety, but mm-hmm. two, it's natural. It's a way that we're trying to actually work with the immune system rather than you know just blocking things. And again, I use all the drugs in Durham all the time, but it's just finding a way to prevent those things from happening. So I'm pretty upfront with owners so that I don't set the expectation. If we do this, 70, 75% chance that's all you're on within a year, because I don't think that's definitely not realistic. But okay. what I explain is, we're hoping to look for all those different things as far as less infections, less medication. Sometimes we'll have dogs that they go on immunotherapy. We try it for even a couple of years. Owners say, I don't know. Like, I don't know if this has done anything. And so mm-hmm. we'll stop. Like we won't refill it on their next refill and we'll see what happens. And I have very, very often had within a couple of months, because again, it's not like they get itchy the next day after you stop it that all of a sudden they break out worse than they ever have before. And it was that we at least had prevented that progression of the allergies with immunotherapy. So those are the things that can be complicated to really figure out unless you're used to it, because it's not like, oh, you stop apical, the next day you get itchy. So when when, um, I have general practitioners that ask me about allergy testing, say like, could they do it? Could they do immunotherapy? It's just something you have to make sure you're feeling really comfortable with. It's not a one size fits all. There's protocols that are out there that you can start with, but we often have to change the dose. We have to know what to look for. So that's kind of how I talk to owners about it. That's good. That's a good perspective
1: though, because I feel like I maybe have been too confident in it sometimes, you know, and saying, okay, we'll send you and they'll test you. And then we can like get this allergy under control, you know? And so I think that's good for me to kind of be able to communicate we're trying to help it not to progress as quickly. We're trying to control it a little bit better, but maybe setting it up more as control than cure. And so that's a good perspective for me to have too, of kind of not, I want to be confident in like what I'm sending them to do, but you know, that that's not the end all. It's not going to completely fix this horribly atopic dog, you know, hundred percent of the time. So.
0: Yeah. And you do like, I've had cases where I'm shocked. Like they're the ones that are terrible and I'm just like, Oh gosh, if we can at least get you, you know, on Cytopoint every six weeks, we'd feel really good because they're just terrible. Or we could have you on three therapies plus immunotherapy. And as long as you're not bringing out with infection, we're happy. But I've had some where I'm just like, okay, hopefully we'll get partially there and they'll be the ones that within a year, that's all they're on. Like it's, it's, there's just really no, no way to predict it. Yeah, you. There's no like way to say, "Oh, they'll do great." They won't. I mean, like I said, I've had a 10 or 11 year old dog within a year do great, and i'm are really happy. So I always talk to them about the options, and I just set the expectations up. But then I always say, you know, only time will tell. But this is a safe alternative. It's a way that we're, you know, working with the body. It's a way we're trying to stop the pathogenesis of the disease process and just setting that up for them so that if they are a failure on it which does happen or if they're doing better but just not only on it they're not completely shocked
1: that makes sense
0: yeah so in general practice doing dermatology so we have like your little small animal derm book you know the derm bible some people call it (laughs) but what resources have you found either like you know of course you can say the derm vet instagram or facebook is a good resource Um, That but is all what, I do. Always, right? <laughs> shameless plug. Um, what germ resources have you found just in daily clinical practice are helpful for you for a general practice?
1: I would say I don't have very many. Um to be purely honest. I mean, yeah. for cytologies, you know, we have the charts that are kind of up everywhere that show different organisms. Um, but at this point I'm fairly comfortable with yeast and rods and cocci. Yeah. Um, not not so good at anything beyond that sometimes, but I have a pretty good cytology book that I'll pull out if I need it. Um, I really enjoy cytology, so. And then in regards to, you know, protocols and what to use and how to do that, I just have a great relationship with our local dermatologist and he, I mean, I can text message him a question or pictures and say, you know, do I need to send this to you? Is there something I should try first? What are you thinking? And, you know, the response is great because he will say, you should maybe consider A, B, and C, or I would maybe try this, or this is my protocol for those horrible rod infection ears. This is what I do, you know, if you wanna try that and if it's not responding, or I can do the recheck, you know, at six weeks or. So the communication and working together as a team, that's probably taught me the most. So I would highly recommend all veterinarians to find who they would refer to in the area and actually establish a relationship with that person, not just a referral relationship, because I think that's probably gonna be your best source of information uh, for on the spot case help um, and also just to get your clients and patients the best response overall. Um, but I do love the digital age around now and all the resources that you're putting out. Um, you can Google images. You just have to be careful who you're, (laughs) who you're asking questions of, but I do think there's so much, so much out there and really all referring or all general practicing vets have tons of resources to be able to do more cytology in-house and do more diagnostics and kind of have treatment plans in place. Yeah. um, If they really start looking.
0: And uh, honestly, like I get asked about derm resources a lot, and there's a lot of great ones like Small Animal Derm, there's Color Atlas, I think a few color atlases, but I really think like CE, going to lectures, because derm is ever-changing, techniques are ever-changing, so I think it's good to have a foundation with some of those resources, but I honestly think experience, learning from people are the best way to go. Are you what?
1: saying you're gonna to come
0: to Texas and talk to ah, me and everything? <laughs> I'm in Texas. Well, it sounds like you already have a great dermatologist. There's lots of great dermatologists. And you know, there's even like telemedicine coming out where you can access dermatologists just to pick their brain about cases. And as you get more practice, you will learn how to manage these cases in a way that you feel more comfortable. So I think that's the most important is practicing, getting opinions, getting, you know, advice. And it's something that once you get comfortable, it's pretty easy to pick up on how you like to manage cases. It definitely
1: practice of, makes perfect. In dorm, absolutely. I think.
0: And, so, and cytology is like slides are cheap, if not free. So like, it's really easy just to keep practicing them and you'll pick it up pretty quickly. So before I open up to any questions you might have for me, the one thing I want to ask is as far as an allergy case in diet trials. So I get asked this a lot too, like, not necessarily when to diet trial. Um, I recently just had a podcast I did with another dermatologist on that. How comfortable do you feel diet trialing or do you diet trial like every case before you send them to a dermatologist? Like what is your thought on that? So
1: I diet trial 0% of the time, okay, pretty much. Um, I think because, and maybe it's our location, but I think environmental allergies are so, so big here. Diet is not usually at the top of my list. And I also think doing a true diet trial, it is extremely difficult to have a owner be compliant to that. And so if an owner is going to be compliant to a diet trial, they are going to usually be willing to go to a specialist also. And so that is something that I'll kind of let our local derm differentiate if they feel like it is environmental, if it's diet, if it's a combination and then go through that. But we get the reports after they go and very, 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 very few of them are actually what they feel like related to diet and are going on diet trials. So I think it maybe is more location dependent. I don't know if that makes sense, but I don't feel like I see it as much, or I just see
0: the conflicting, you know, atopy. I don't know if I'm making sense. (laughs) Here's oh, sense. It, atopy is for sure more common. I think the tricky thing about food is it can sneak in as a concurrent allergy. And I still think most patients like atopic dermatitis is the biggest concern in most. There's a the few, but it doesn't really... So I've been asked, like, do you have to diet trial a pet before they like we should refer them? And honestly, I am totally fine with your answer because if you're gonna refer them, you're kind of leaving it up to the dermatologist to differentiate the little things that might make us suspicious about allergy. The other thing is if you're not super, you know, into diet trials and they are frustrating and they're expensive and they're then they can be they're time consuming, right? Because you don't see an answer right away. So like for me, I would almost rather if they're gonna be referred, come in, not having one than having a poor diet trial. And then me being like, Oh, we really should do that. We really should look at the food and the owners over it because they're like, Nope, already did it. So I don't mind at all. Like even mentioning like, Oh, maybe it's food, but let's get your referred and and have them work it up because everyone's philosophy on food allergies a bit different. But I think the hardest thing for me, cause I truly think like there's general practitioners who are into food and they can do an amazing food trial. You have to be willing to talk to the owner. Do they have kids in the house? Do they have other animals in the house? Are there other foods? Are they giving table scraps? What preventions are they on? Like it's a pretty detailed thing to go over a diet trial. And I've seen a lot where they come in it's either been an over the counter diet where they said just switch the protein source. And that's not a diet trial to most of us. Or it's like they were on a diet trial, but you know, they didn't know they couldn't give hot dog with the pills. And so, and that happens more often than you think. Oh, that's a hundred
1: percent my clients. That is exactly. Yeah, it
0: happens all the time. I mean, I had one where it's like, they happened to be one of the ones that flared to the fleet control layer on and they didn't, they didn't know they shouldn't be on it. So I do think that leaving it up to a dermatologist or if you feel passionate about it and are okay taking that time, that's wonderful. And I think you can do a wonderful diet trial. But I definitely don't expect every case to see me. I've already been through a great one personally. Now every dermatologist can be different on that, because if it's not going to be done as well, or I didn't feel like it even had to be done, then that's okay. So yeah, I don't, I don't hate your answer. If you were hoping, okay, that I might. I'm being super, <laughs>
1: I'm being very honest and vulnerable. <laughs> I want to be, I want you to be
0: honest because that's real. Like there's some old school mentalities, right? Like people used to always think you had to try three antihistamines before you did anything else. Now you really don't use them you know, people used to use certain diets to do diet trials. Venison used to be a big thing. Now some of us don't use that because of cross-reaction. So I think it's okay if like, it's nothing that you necessarily want to do. It's not something you just have to check off the box if you'd rather have them referred. And everyone will have a different opinion on that. Um, Even uh, we fight on which ones, what diets to use. So like, it's not your cut. While well, being respectful of your time, I know we're like been so lucky that we haven't been interrupted by children. Any questions before we end our time together you have for me at all? So if you want to
1: reiterate for me what medications and timeframes you do or don't want pets to be on before mm-hmm. they come to you, because I'm always, I feel like I kind of know the basics, but maybe go over it for everybody. Yeah. Um,
0: I will say it's a little bit of a loaded question because I think a lot of us, so we used to have the standard rules that a lot of us use, like, you know, four weeks for oral steroids, two weeks for antihistamines, then you enter the real world and it really, and it really can depend, right? So like if a dog's been on antihistamines, like constantly for years and years and years, then yeah, I might have more of like a couple week waiting period. Whereas personally, for me, if they drove a few hours to see me and they got one dose of Benadryl three days ago and that was the only dose they ever got, then I'm probably open to skin testing them, and that's why we have the histamine as a response. So I my biggest suggestion is find out what your local dermatologist does for that because we all have different opinions on it. And I don't think, I don't think anyway, it's as easy to say, Oh, if you had one dose of Benadryl, it has to be two weeks. Like sometimes that's not realistic for the owner. In general, I would say if they've been on something, say fairly consistently, we usually try to wait, you know, three to four weeks off of uh, oral steroids, injectable steroids. It depends on the type. A Dexsp injection is much different than a Depomedrol injection. If they've had consistent Depomedrol injections, then I'm probably waiting a pretty substantial amount of time, like six to eight weeks. So those are probably the big things. Antihistamines, we used to say two weeks. Now they they kind of intermittently got them and it hasn't been, you know, years and years, I'm probably okay with a week off, but that just kind of comes with experience. And another dermatologist probably hear that and like, think <laughs> I'm totally wrong. Um, uh, but that's where it just comes to knowing who you're referring to. Cause you don't want to refer someone and say, Oh, they're okay. If you got one dose of Benadryl a few days ago, and then they're like, absolutely not until it's two weeks off. So that would be kind of my overall things. The, the big point to bring up is apical side point and Atopica do not block skin tests. So I have had cases where people have stopped Apoquil for like two to three weeks before they see me. And then the pet's itchy and miserable, but we can, we can skin test on Cytopoint Apoquil and Atopica. So those don't have to be withdrawn at all. Topical therapies like ear medications can be really dependent on how long they've been on it and the dermatologist. But if it's something topical, then probably a week or two, unless it's just been like something potent, like Bajan spray every day for years and years and years then i'm probably a bit more forgiving on that
1: okay that is good information so another thing i am huge on the preventative so like mm-hmm. the ear cleaners that have the you know antifungal in it for prevention and then um, bathing and a lot of my owners are freaked out that they're going to bathe their dogs too much and i will often say you can bathe your dog one or two times a week they're having a really yep. bad flare up, like once a day, three days in a row. Am I right? Or is there a overbathing that can occur if you're not careful? Does it depend on the product? What is your bathing recommendation?
0: Yeah. So I think that ultimately it depends on a little bit where you're at. So I do know some of the, like the higher drier client, uh, climates, they may be more worried about like drying out the skin, say like in the mountains of Colorado or something like and that. Texas,
1: it. It's yeah, humid. <laughs> it
0: is humid. So you're probably okay with that. It depends on the case for me and the product because if you use something more like a benzoyl peroxide because they have comedones or you know whatever then that is more drying my typical like most of mine are going on some sort of chlorhexidine azole topical product i have zero problem with bathing them once or twice a week indefinitely especially where i live in oregon so that doesn't bother me at all the other thing is if i am going to be bothered like say the worst thing that happens is they have a little bit of dried out skin. Well, if they're rip-roaring full of infection, then I don't really care if there's a little dry skin if we need daily bathing to get rid of the infection. So I don't, I'm not really big on thinking overbathing is a problem personally. So I would say one to two weeks, go for it. Love it. I have
1: a million derm questions and uh-huh. specific questions. So we just need to do more podcasts in the future. But yeah. my other just like personal question is, how the heck do you make yourself a morning person? Because I see Uh
0: videos
1: and I am a night owl and I just cannot do it. So keep it up. But I
0: think it, I think it really can depend on your personality a little bit, right? Like my mom is a night owl, but my dad's an early person. So maybe I get it from him, but you can change because my husband was a night owl when we first met and got married. And then um, he has now become a morning person with me. But part of that was just, like you train your clients. I trained my husband. Um, (laughs) You know, slowly he saw me like, you know, getting stuff, more stuff done, getting your workouts Uh, in. I think especially having kids and having that time period where we found out that was an isolated pocket we got together. But slowly and consistently. So it's like, get (laughs) up, you know, just 10 minutes earlier go take a walk for five minutes, have a little bit more time to drink your coffee. People always see that we get up. So depending on the day and what time I'm going to work, we get up anywhere between 4.45 and 5, which I know sounds crazy. Um, And it's not like I love getting up at 4.45, but there's days that I work pretty early shifts and that's just the time I need. But I am training myself to go to bed earlier and earlier to not be in a sleep deficit with that but i also like i thrive off being up early i actually like once it starts the clock starts hitting like 10 i feel like why are people still up at this time like at night so it's just different philosophies but people see that and they're like well i just set my alarm clock for five then if you're used to getting up at seven or 7 30 like just give with six forty-five. like you know just slowly get into it i didn't automatically always just love getting up that early but now it's just a routine because i slowly worked into it but doesn't mean i think everyone should be a morning person but it just is what works for us
1: i do think it would be a good time to just get myself mentally and physically ready for the day so i'm considering it but i have to go to bed start going to bed before midnight if i'm gonna make yeah. that happen oh yeah see so, that yeah.
0: like if it's like 10:30, i'm like what am i doing <laughs> like I'm just not I'm the opposite. Like I just thrive off of I feel more like a person if I go to bed early and get up early. But yeah, I mean I don't feel right if I just get up and rush to go to work. Like I feel more complete if I get up, I have my workout, I you know, then we kind of are still rushing to get ready for work, but that time with me and my husband to do something good for ourselves, like has been a game changer for us. But everyone's totally different.
1: <sighs> okay.
0: Yeah. It's very motivating. It I like seeing it. I like your videos are good. You. Well, I want to thank you. I know you have to go get your kiddos. Uh, Your voice hung in there super well. So I just want to thank Dr. Crocker for being on the podcast, for giving that insight. I think it's been really helpful for gender practitioners. You are so inspiring with everything you're doing. Um, You guys should check her out, Dr. Tanisha Crocker on Instagram. And then is it Crocker Pet Vet for your Facebook?
1: Dr. Tanisha Crocker Veterinarian actually on Facebook and DrCrockerPetVet.com for kind of everything in one website
0: so there you go you can find her so thank you thank you so much and until the next time you guys uh, make sure to always make derm fun and not as frustrating bye guys